Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, April 22nd, 2014. Now, as of the time we are recording, we do not have a website yet. That's right. We've been uh, languishing under a denial of service attack that has been launched against my internet service provider. So we are SANS website. That means without website. Details here in a second. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you think biblically, help you think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, because sadly there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We slow down, stop, open up our Bible, and really take a look to see if what people are saying God wants us to believe, teach, confess, and do is what God's Word says that we should believe, confess, teach, and do. You you get what I'm saying. All right, so last week we had a short week because I uh, traveled up to North Dakota, and uh, in fact I got to uh, preach the Easter service at uh, the the church where I, I will be pastoring beginning in June and it was just a fantastic time. I got a, I, the, I got the opportunity to actually visit some of uh, uh, the members of my congregation who were ill and in the hospital, and that was actually quite a challenge as well as a, as, as a real blessing. And uh, yeah, it, it just makes you realize that um, that being a pastor is far more than just being a good preacher or a good teacher. It's really about caring for, feeding, and praying with, and being with uh, the sheep that Christ has. Uh, uh, asked you to care for, and so it was. A, it was a very good trip. I enjoyed my sermon. Um, we did not, by the way, get a, a good enough recording of it to be able to play it on the air. So I know some of you are asking about that. Um, I'm considering uh, maybe later in the week uh, putting it out as an example of a good Easter sermon. But that seems kind of pretentious of me to do that. <laughs> but uh, I, it, you, you'll get what I'm saying here if, if I end up uh, reading it. Uh, in a later installment of Fighting for the Faith this week, because this is an important week here at Fighting for the Faith. In fact, traditionally, week uh, the week after Easter and the week after the week after Easter are very important because they work together here at Fighting for the Faith. One of the things I've made a point of pointing out through the years is that you can tell generally, not not always, but you can generally tell what kind of church you're dealing with based upon what the pastor preaches on Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. 
Does he preach Christ in his saving office? Does he preach Christ in him crucified for our sins and raised again on the third day for our justification? Uh, does he, is that what he preaches on Easter Sunday? Or does uh, Jesus in the resurrection get an honorable mention, maybe an applause? You know, yay, Jesus, way to go. Neat magic trick that you were able to do that. And now we're going to talk about ourselves. Is, is that what happens at your church? Um, yeah, so uh, what we do here at Fighting for the Faith during the Easter season, immediately after the Easter holiday, is week one, we play for you good Easter sermons. And what I mean by good is not that they're rhetorically excellent or they're just amazing in their nuanced theology. No, 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 no. What I mean by good is that the pastor humbly does his job. He preaches Christ. He preaches Christ crucified, Christ risen from the grave, and he preaches the hope of eternal life, Christ's victory. All of that is is what happens during uh, the week after Easter. So we look for good sermons where Christ is preached on Easter Sunday, and then that what that does is it creates in your mind, if you would, the bar. The you know the, where's the bar set for what it is that we should be expecting to hear on any given Easter Sunday. And then week two comes around, and that will be next week. And week two is where we play for you the contestants in a contest that we hold every year for the worst Easter sermon of the year. And we've had some very important people win this uh, this prestigious award through the years. Joel Osteen has won. Rob Bell has won. Um, you know, so you know, we've had some pretty prestigious people win this. And uh, the person who wins the uh, the contest, by the way, uh, traditionally what we do is we send that pastor a copy of Michael Horton's book entitled Christless Christianity. So this year will be no different. And uh, and so what I'm going to do right now is actually solicit from you. If you know of a church that you think ought to have their sermon considered for this year's Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest, you need to email me. You email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, and I need a link to the church's websites, um, um, more preferably to the sermon itself, the name of the sermon um, the name of the pastor, you know, include that in the email. And then in the subject line, all you have to put is Worst Easter Sermon Contest. That's all you need to do. Worst Easter Sermon Contest. Put that as the subject line, and my email reader will sort those out for me so that I can find them more easily. We will preview every submitted uh, sermon for this year's uh, Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. And then next week, we will begin playing those during our sermon review time uh, during the normal program. So this week, nothing but good sermons on, you know, good Easter sermons next week, nothing but bad, okay? So, but the idea is, is that this week and next week, they work together. They, they are a unit. In fact, if you're, if you're wondering, okay, well, what exactly am I looking for, you know, when it comes to a bad Easter sermon? You know, well, okay, I'm going to give you some examples. In fact, let, let, me, t- let me tell you what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith so that you can kind of get what's going on here. Um, right now, between now and the first break, what we're going to do is I'm going to play for you a couple of examples of what I would consider to be bad Easter sermons and demonstrate what it is that we're looking for and what it is, why they would be considered bad Easter sermons. Now, they may or may not make the cut. In fact, the, the two examples I'm going to give, uh, they may or may not make the cut for this year's contest, but they, uh, don't let that 
uh, don't let that will dissuade you because what we're what this is just kind of giving an example of what it is that we're looking for. Okay, setting up this week and next week. Then we'll take a break and when we come back. Uh, we're, we'll do a kind of our standard uh, fighting for the faith fair. We're going to begin with a William Tapley Thirty Gill of the Apocalypse and Co Prophet of the End Times update. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because it's been a while since we've done that, and uh, and then we'll do a kind of a Patricia King gang update with uh, Jennifer Leclaire calling all intercessors in Kentucky regarding the breaker anointing. I, yeah, I know, I have no idea what that means, but uh, we'll take a look at what that is about, and then we'll take a break, and then in hour number two, we will listen to a couple of good sermons. I have a kind of a hopper full of them right now as I've been uh, you know preparing for this week's program. And what we'll do is we'll we'll start off with maybe two or three of them. They're not that long, so uh, and you'll, that way you can kind of get in your mind. Okay, here's what a good Easter sermon sounds like, and you already begin to have an idea what a bad Easter sermon sounds like, and then you can have that all in your mind. And then if you know of a sermon that you know just has to be considered for this year's. Uh, worst Easter sermon of the year contest, then you can send me the link. So, you know, to kind of begin here, um, if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, then you know that I sent out a, uh, a Facebook uh, update and a, a Twitter a tweet where I showed to you the movie poster. Uh huh. Yeah, that's right. The movie poster for um, a church in, I want to say, Winnipeg, Canada. Um, in in and the name of the church is Church of the Rock, and they did a Star Wars themed Easter service. Uh huh. Star Wars. Uh huh. The uh, A New Hope. So it's you know kind of episode four, five, and six kind of thing. Episode four was their their theme. And so to kind of give you an idea of what it is that we're looking for for worst Easter sermon of the year for contestants. Well, here's the pastor from Church of the Rock in Winnipeg. And his um, Star Wars-based Easter sermon. Here we go. If you have a Bible with you, I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. I trust you enjoyed our little romp through the southern Manitoba galaxy. And I think when it comes to Star Wars, I don't think there is a more enduring movie series in our generation than Star Wars. And now you, you've probably heard this, that Disney has bought the franchise. They paid $4 billion for it and immediately announced that they were producing three more episodes, seven, eight, and nine. So you know what that means? That means that our children and our grandchildren are going to be rocking on Star Wars just like we were growing up. Yeah, now see, already, see, we got a problem here. 35 seconds into the quote-unquote sermon, and um, hmm, where's the emphasis uh, for this syllable, it's on Star Wars. Oh, isn't it great that our chil- our children and our grandchildren are going to be rocking on Star Wars? Yeah, uh, um, you are aware that the dead guy rose from the grave on Easter Sunday. Yeah, um, this vindicating his suffering, proving that he's God in human flesh. You know, proving that his sacrifice for our sins was accepted by the father you know things like that i mean you could you know there's and, you know, showing his victory over well you could talk about jesus's victory over the grave you could talk about jesus's victory over the world if you wanted to that's a perfectly legit theme uh for easter you could talk about jesus's victory over the devil um you, there's lots of victory thing that you could talk about and you're talking about the great victory that disney purchased the star wars franchise Let's continue. So this, this is sort of a metaphor that's going to keep on going for a very long time. 
And I don't want you to think for a moment, just because what we did here today, that I'm in some way obsessed with Star Wars. I'm not. The fact that I, I call my lawnmower that crazy droid, I wouldn't make anything of that. The fact that I can name all the planets in the Star Wars universe and I struggle with the ones in our own solar system is merely a coincidence. <laughs> See, what you need to understand is that there are Star Wars fans, Star Wars fanatics, and Star Wars rednecks. Now, mm, now, how about Bible? You know, those pastors who are really into the Bible. Can you name, I know you can name all of the planets in the Star Wars galaxy. Can you name the 12 disciples? You know, things like that. The Star Wars rednecks, they're pretty easy to spot because they're the ones who have land speeders up on blocks in their backyard. Oh, and by the way, this pastor, he's dressed as a Jedi. Just want to let you know. Although he doesn't have a mullet. I'm happy about that fact. <laughs> they're the ones who think Jabba the Hutt has a pretty good handle on how to treat women. And uh, they're the ones who have a brother-in-law who looks suspiciously like Chewbacca. <laughs> now, in my case, he looks suspiciously like my son-in-law. Uh, and you may not know this, but this is what I did. When I, when I wrote the script for this, I cast my daughter as Princess Leia and my son as Chewbacca, and neither of them had to wear costumes. <laughs> I told him uh, he could be in it, but he was going to pay a price for it. Well, what we want to do today is we want to look at, at the message of Star Wars, and I think there's a message in it that, that lines up with the Scripture. Uh, the message of Star Wars. And what would that message that lines up with the Scripture be, considering the fact that George Lucas has made it very clear that, uh, that the idea behind the Star Wars franchise, the religion behind it, is, is a form of Buddhism? You know, why would we want to bring that into our Christian churches on the day in which we celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the grave and see if we, if we can't draw some kind of tight circle between the Buddhist philosophy in the Star Wars movies and the message of Christianity? You, you see, already we've got a, a major, major problem. Okay. Now, I'm not going to play the whole sermon. That, this, this is just an example of what it is that we are looking for here at Fighting for the Faith for this year's Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. And uh, to give you a, a yet another example of what it is that we're looking for, okay, so we're looking for, you know, completed um, adventures and missing the point, um, trying to draw conclusions, uh, you know, draw parallels between stuff that you shouldn't be drawing parallels to when it comes to Christianity, um, giving Jesus a high five at the beginning of the service and then immediately talking about yourself. That would be another example of what we're looking for. And to kind of give you an idea of what that sounds like, um, let, me, uh, let me take you to uh, the Easter celebration from Church by the Glades and uh, David Hughes down there in Florida. In fact, listen, listen in. Up, Church by the Glades. Man, good to see you. So glad. So glad you're here. If you're a guest, if you're a guest, you've taken an hour out of your busy Easter weekend uh, to navigate the parking and be here. Thank you so much. I'm David. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you're with us today. For us, it's a very cool day because we are, you know, we're just one church of many churches. I'm just one Christ follower. Many multiplied millions of Christ followers that celebrate our biggest day. Today, we recognize the reality of the resurrection of our King. It's all about the fact that my Jesus... My Jesus is alive. So, uh, so All right. Now, I mean, that sounds like a good start, right? Uh, but, you know, see, don't let that fake you out because, you know, Church by the Glades, they don't really preach Jesus. They preach you. So what's the point of mentioning Jesus' resurrection from the grave? Well, I can, you know, I, I kind of consider that to be the obligatory uh, high five to Jesus 
for his great magic trick that he uh, performed on Easter Sunday. And once everybody's given him the applause line, well, we've done our due diligence, and then you can change the subject. Let's see if David Hughes does that. Here today, and I hope you'll think about coming back next week. Next week, we do launch this new series. Uh, we're calling it Love Bites. Uh, we love parables here. Yeah, see, notice, I mean, no sooner does he say, thank you, wow, it's great that Jesus rose from the grave. Uh, well, moving on to the next thing, we're going to talk about what our next sermon series is going to be here at Church by the Glade. It's called Love Bites. Uh-huh. He's taught in parables. He loved narrative. He loved, you know, storytelling. And I find the stories are sticky. And I want the principle to kind of stick in your heart. So we're going to do some creativity next week. Some, something on the stage without apology, over the top, and kind of wild and probably kind of stupid. So be here next week for a real fun series launch, Love Bites. And then also it's about relationships. And we're all trying to figure out relationships. Amen? Right? Come on. Come on. Do you have somebody in your life that you love this person, but they're making you kind of crazy? Maybe, maybe they're annoying. Maybe they're critical. Maybe they got bad hygiene or something, but they're in your life. You got that annoying. Raise your hand if you got one of those people in your life. Raise your hand if you got one of those. Maybe you brought that person to church. They brought it. Bring him back next week. Bring him back next week. So turn to your neighbor. Turn to your neighbor. I'll see you next week at Church by the Glaze. Turn to your neighbor. I'll see you next week. Come on, everybody do it. Next week, all three campuses. Next week for Love Bites. And so it's going to be a ton of fun teaching on relationships next week. But today, I want to talk to you about, um, I want to talk to you about a symbol. Okay. So today, you want to talk to me about a symbol. It's Easter Sunday. Symbol for what? Now, typically on Easter, you would teach about the, uh, the central symbol of our faith, our main motif. By the way, if there's in this section out of here, if you have any empty seats, how about this? Scoot, scoot this way. Scoot this way. They're looking for seats. Got ushers up in this section over here. There's some seats. You guys scoot in, right? Will you do that for us in this section up here? Please? I say three. Y'all stand up. Ready? One, two, three. You guys stand up. We're going to applaud for you madly as you stand up. That's it. That's it. One guy step. Stand and scoot in a little bit. Scoot in a little bit. Awesome. All right. There we go. Uh, the symbol, the symbol is this. It's not the stirring symbol of the cross. That's our main motif. It's, it's a less substantial symbol. I'm going to put it on this. So we're not going to talk about the cross on Easter Sunday. We're going to talk about a different symbol. What symbol are you going to talk about on Easter Sunday? If you recognize what this symbol is, loudly, loudly say so. Ready? One, two, three. Bam. What is it? It's a hashtag. You said tic-tac-toe, you're old. But if you said hashtag, you're probably into social media. You do Instagram, you do Twitter. And a hashtag is a symbol we use to identify, to connect, to, uh, to label something or someone. It's kind of human nature, this world we love to label. In fact, let me demonstrate this in case you're not into social media. I'm going to put some hashtag statements on the screen. If this statement you see connects with you, if it resonates with you, Make some noise. Cheer, clap, scream, something, okay? Here we go. First one right now. Go. There you go. Knowles, BCS champs, you know, the one, the whole thing. By the way, I had some cheering people. I had some booing people over here. I had one person, I saw their arm cramping all of a sudden doing this. You gators, the whole next series, gator stuff, you gators. All right, this next one might resonate with a bigger portion of our church population. Ready? One, two, three, and hashtag... Come on, it's playoff. It says hashtag Heat fan. Yeah, the Miami Heat. Time right now, playoff time. My prophetic prediction today is a three-peat for the Heat. Three-peat for the Heat. All right. Now, keep in mind, this is an Easter sermon. 
Next hashtag right now. Next hashtag and go. It says cat lover. Hashtag cat lover. Really? Really? And we love all kinds of people. Church by the Glades, even cat people. Uh, and finally, 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 this fourth one. If this resonates, make some noise. One, two, three, and bam. It says uh, hashtag I love CBG. That means Church by the Glades. Me too. I, I love, I love being a little tiny piece of what God is doing, changing lives at Church by the Glades. Thank you so much for being here today, and I'll see you next week as well. But I want to talk about this idea of a hashtag. A hashtag is a, a mechanism we use to frame or identify or to label. All right. So that's the preview. Okay. You've now heard two, you know, just kind of snippets from some Easter sermons that may or may not make the, the cut this year. Um, but I wanted you to hear what it is that we are looking for. We need your submissions. We need you to help us pick this year's contestants for the worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest, which is a contest that we hold every year here at Fighting for the Faith, and that will begin next week. Not this week, next week. This week, all good sermons so that you can hear for yourself what it is that we're, what we consider to be a sermon that is a good Easter sermon. Why would it be good? Because it focuses on Christ. It's all about Jesus and what he has done for us, it's not about us, it's about him, and the pastor doesn't just give a high five to Jesus and then wander off his merry way to talk about whatever he wants to talk about. No, the pastor's going to end up telling us actually about Jesus himself, which is an important part of what makes a good Easter sermon. So, now that you've kind of got this in your mind, you know what to do. Again, if you have a sermon that you would like to be considered for this week's Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest, you need to email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. The subject line needs to read Worst Easter Sermon Contest. That's all you need to do, and uh, we will preview it, and we will pick this year's contestants from uh, from listener suggestions as well as sermons that I find and you know now what it is that we are looking for. All right, what we're going to do right now is we're going to take our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we have a William Tapley update. We have a Jennifer LeClaire update. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church.
Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is too. Oh, wonderful. Your goddess is coming along beautifully. Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes, my goddess would let everyone go to heaven, except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, and good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent! Now for the final step, you have to name your goddess. Hmm, I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if they preach you rather than Christ on Easter Sunday. And that should be what causes you to become dissatisfied, by the way. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508 
Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right. Moving along, we have a William Tapley update, you know, important Easter message. Uh, the Pope apparently has been up to something very nefarious, and William Tapley has been watching the reports on the Drudge Report and is going to give us all of the prophetic insights. But since we're doing a William Tapley update, that requires us to do, well, this. Listen to Third Eagle's tune, doom and gloom, God is telling us the end is coming soon, very soon, you'll see signs up in the sun and stars and moon, doom and gloom, very soon, rapture comes at night or noon, doom and gloom, very soon, if you're ready, you will meet the bride and groom, yeah, that's right. William Tapley and his mad skills there on the Casio. Now, apparently the Pope has, well, been up to no good. And uh, William Tapley is becoming, uh, well, he's coming under the influence of those within Roman Catholicism that believe that the Pope may be the uh, false prophet or the Antichrist or something of, of nefarious ilk in, in, when it comes to uh, eschatological symbols and things like that. So, uh, and what's the proof of this? Well, apparently the Pope is, uh, well... He's washed the feet of women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) here's William Tapley to explain all of this to us. Here we go. Happy Easter, everyone. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the third eagle of the apocalypse and the co-prophet of these end times. Today, we celebrate the greatest of all the feast days on the Christian calendar. All right, so he's going to talk about Easter. Will we hear William Tapley talk about Christ and him crucified for our sins, raised again for our justification? Will we hear him give out the clarion call for people to repent and be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ? Is this what we're going to hear from him? I mean, that's kind of an Eastery message, don't you think? Well, let's see. And that is when Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah. And he rose to give all of us hope of our own eternal salvation. Okay, so he gave us hope of our eternal salvation. How so? I mean, I mean that's technically correct, um, but I would like a little bit more details from you, William Tapley. I mean, because, you know, don't you think that if you are going to distinguish yourself from the false prophets, that you would spend, it a lot, uh, spend a lot of time telling us about Jesus? Don't you think that's kind of an important thing? However, in addition to this good news today... I also have some not-so-good news. Apparently we're done with the good news. That's enough good news for you all, folks. You know, listen, you know, nothing to see here. Now now comes the bad news. You know, Jesus gets the, yeah, way to go, Jesus. Thanks for giving us hope of our salvation. Now let's get down to business. Okay. And that is because Pope Francis, again, made the error this week of washing the feet of women during his Holy Thursday penitential service okay um how is that evil again that is totally unbiblical Uh, (laughs) and how so (laughs) this one of these things where you just never know what's going to set william tapley off i mean okay jesus never washed the feet of women 
Yeah, yeah, but there was a woman who washed his feet um, with her tears even, you know. And this is very serious. Okay. And uh, a week or so ago, the uh, seer in Ireland called Maria Divine Mercy. The seer in Ireland, Maria Divine Mercy. Does she have the breaker anointing? I mean, is, does she hang out Patri- with Patricia King? What did, she, what did the seer in Ireland say? Predicted that Pope Francis, and she considers him the false prophet. Uh-huh. And let me tell you what she wrote. She said, and she's quoting Jesus, You will know these traitors by their symbolic gestures which insult my divinity. Whoa, 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 whoa. Where's that in the Bible? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's not. Okay, <laughs> sorry. My bad. Okay, he said that um, that these were the words of Jesus. Ah, th- th- we should make a little note here. These are the words of Jesus through the seer, Maria Divine Mercy. Uh-huh. Why should I believe that Maria Divine Mercy is, uh, you know, kind of has the inside track with Jesus and is getting special revelation from him exactly? Um, why should I believe that again? So that's an interesting way to express it. What Pope Francis did by washing the feet of women is to insult Jesus. What he is saying is, I am superior to my own Lord and Savior. Yeah, well, <clears throat> funny that you'd say that. Um, I think the Pope does that in other ways, kind of in spades. That's kind of the whole point of what the, the Lutheran um, confessions talk about, the, the, the office of the papacy being in the office of Antichrist, if you would, uh, the one who makes himself the visible head of Christ's body here on earth, whereas um, the, vis- the, the, the head of the church is Christ. So I agree with you. The Pope is definitely uh, trying to usurp Jesus. But I don't think he's doing that by washing the feet of women. Yeah, no, not at all. Jesus did not wash the feet of women because he was constrained by the culture of that time, which did not consider women equal to men. But we live in a superior, enlightened culture where women are superior to men. Uh, uh, <laughs> What? And that is a very grave mistake on his part. Here is what the Pope is doing. He is not only perverting what Jesus did, he is contradicting the words of Peter and Paul. Uh, Both Peter and Paul said, don't wash the feet of women. Here is what Paul wrote in Ephesians. Okay. Wives. Submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. Yeah, that's what it says. And how exactly does that forbid some a dude from washing the feet of a woman? I, not seeing it. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ... So also let the wives be to their husbands in all things. And Peter says very much the same thing. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Hang on a second here. I, I just have got to open up Ephesians chapter 5 in my Bible because for whatever reason, I feel like William Tapley has left something out. <clears throat> yeah, here it is. <clears throat> Ready for this? Um, verse 25. Husbands... 
love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. (laughs) Well, correct me if I'm wrong here, but doesn't Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, talk about how Jesus has washed his bride, the church, and that husbands are to wash their brides? Huh? Yeah. Okay, so um, I just bring all of that up because, um, listen, that passage actually kind of cuts two different directions, and he only let the cut go one way there. And he sure is making a big deal about the fact that the Pope apparently washed the feet of women, and that somehow this is contradicting Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Um, but that's not what's going on at all, and he's kind of skipped verse 25. Weird. In like manner also... Let wives be subject to their husbands. Yeah, but again, can I point this out? The uh, the Pope, as far as I know, doesn't have a wife. So, um, yeah. And not only that, he's not a polygamist. So the the, the <laughs> these women's feet that he washed, these are not his wives. Yeah, you get what I'm saying here. Wow, this is weird. And Pope Francis is contradicting what Peter and Paul are saying. And he is contradicting them in a very subtle manner. And I am here to warn you wives today. Okay. (laughs) Well, you wives better listen in. William Tapley is about to speak to you prophetically, you know. Do not listen to what Pope Francis is saying. You must still be subject to your husbands. And... And... <clears throat> yeah, listen, uh, folks, um, there's a few things you don't ever want to get from William Tapley. Uh, one of them is prophetic insight. Um, you probably don't want to get that from William, Ta- from William Tapley. But after hearing this, I'm pretty convinced you probably don't want to get your um, marital advice from William Tapley either. Um, it just just saying um, there, there may be something squirrely going on there um, where he doesn't quite um, have what it takes to offer good, biblical, godly counsel when it comes to marital relationships. Just something I've just noticed uh, as a result of this video. Just saying. Moving along. So, do you live in Kentucky? Well, if you do, apparently there's a call going out, an intercessor's call for people in Kentucky regarding the breaker anointing or Something of that nature. Yeah, I know. Just hang on. Here's Jennifer LeClaire with the details. Hi, it's Jennifer LeClaire. You probably know me from my books like The Making of a Prophet or The Spiritual Warrior's Guide to Defeating Jezebel. Probably read my articles on Charisma Magazine. I'm one of the editors there. But what you might not know about me is that I'm the executive director of the International House of Prayer in Fort Lauderdale. Okay. And we've seen recently a huge breakthrough there. And and this whole theme of breakthrough is just such in my spirit right now. So when I met... You have breakthrough in the spirit. Okay. 
you might want to see a doctor for that. Linda Willoughby of Keepers of the Flame International, Michelle Smith of Lord Send Me. We started talking about breakthrough. We started talking about intercession. We started talking about all things prophetic. And we started talking about the breaker anointing. And that's what I want to talk to you about today because... You've been talking about the breaker anointing? No way. We have launched a movement for Kentucky that you are going to want to be part of if you're in Kentucky. And if you're not in Kentucky, I would pray that you would consider joining with us in the spirit or maybe contacting us about launching a similar movement in your state. Now, (laughs) you can't see this because this is radio, but on the computer screen, uh, there's a little subtitle that says Calling Kentucky Intercessors. Visit the website, www.breakthroughanointing.com. Why am I afraid to do this? Well, let's continue. I am blowing the trumpet. I am sounding the alarm. I am making my voice heard. The time is now. You know, the preacher said in Ecclesiastes 3 that there's a time for everything and a season for everything under heaven. So what is the season that we're in? It is time for the the intercessors in Kentucky and beyond to unite for an unprecedented move of God. I mean, I see it. I can smell it. I can taste it. We've been meeting about this. We've been planning this and we are ready to launch. And it all starts with understanding the season that Kentucky is in. And what role Kentucky's intercessors have to play in this prophetic season. And if you're listening to the sound of my voice, if you're an intercessor. Wouldn't Kentucky be like in the season known as spring? What do you mean? What season they're in? In Kentucky, this is probably like music to your ears. This is probably like the Holy Spirit talking to you even now, because I know that your spirit has been stirred for years even about this breaker anointing. Maybe you didn't call it that. Maybe you called it something else, but I'm talking about breakthrough. I'm talking about tearing the walls down. So I'm blowing the trumpet. I'm sounding the alarm and I'm saying, Kentucky intercessors, let's come together. Let's unite. Let's get out of the prayer closet and join forces in the public square. Let's meet up. Let's bring these walls down. Um, what walls? I mean, uh, I'm just sitting here going, oh, those poor people in Kentucky. Um, what is she talking about? What, what is this? Okay, so I, I went to the, okay, BreakthroughAnointing.com. Apparently they have a Facebook page. And they've got, uh, and they've got an About Us. Uh, Keepers of the Flame founder, Linda Willoughby. Of Charisma Magazine. Okay. Um, I'm kind of at a loss here. Um, But she's sounding the alarm. She's blowing a trumpet, you know, because you got to come out of the prayer closet and break down the walls. (laughs) I mean, okay, sure. She's, this is a call to action. But what is the action that somebody's supposed to take here? I mean, what does this even mean? And by the way, I mean, at the time I'm playing this, is this video has only been viewed by 57 people. I mean, clearly uh, the Holy Spirit's having a PR problem here. What am I talking about? Well, we're entering the season of a breaker anointing, and it's going to require unity, unprecedented unity among intercessors. In- uh, <laughs> what's a breaker anointing, and why does it require unity? What is this? In Kentucky. And listen, if you're not in Kentucky, join with us in spirit or contact me because we see this as a national movement. We see God using this breaker anointing to shake things up, to take the devil 
out of our out of our society. I mean, we know the enemy is not going to leave until Jesus comes back. But that doesn't mean that we have to lay down and let him wreak havoc in our public schools. Let him wreak havoc in our local governments. We are here to occupy until Jesus comes. We are here to be representatives, to be ambassadors of Christ, to preach. So is this like a spiritual Occupy Kentucky movement? I mean, it's the gospel to evangelize. And that requires intercession, much more intercession that's currently going forth. And I think what's been missing is that 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 unity and in intercession. Yeah, we're unified in spirit, but we're we're disconnected. We don't know each other. And no, I'm not for Kentucky, but God yet has called me to labor, to co-labor with you, to co-labor with you, the intercessors of Kentucky, to co-labor with Linda and Michelle and the others who have already come on board with us to take this breaker anointing, to usher it into Kentucky. What am I talking about? We believe this breaker anointing will spread like wildfire across the United States once intercessors get the revelation and pray for it in their state. So, con- <laughs> I mean, I mean, she's got all these metaphors. It's a call to action. You know, it's going to it's going to break out like wildfire again, the breaker anointing because you, you need a call for intercessors and I mean I don't think anybody watching this is going to know what it is that they're supposed to do. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. You keep threatening to actually kind of explain what all of this is about, and then you just launch into these nonsensical statements again. How can this be a move of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit is not even capable of a lucid sentence? Like I said, if you're not in Kentucky, contact me anyway. I want to hear from you. God is doing something, and we want you to be a part of it. But let me let me show you scripture on this so you, you can hang your faith on something here. What is this breaker anointing? Yeah, I want to see scripture on that. We see it here in Micah 2, verses 12 through 13. And the Bible says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. And here's the key. That's one of the keys. He wants to assemble the intercessors. What? Micah 2, 12 and 13 is... Not talking about a breaker anointing. Oh, my goodness. Hang on a second. Let me pull this up. Okay. Uh, Micah, Micah chapter 2. Oh, man. I mean, does adding context here, is it going to even help? Okay. Yeah, we're going to add some We're gonna add some context here so you can see what's going on. Micah 2, verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it. Because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. So here God, through the prophet Micah, is calling Israel to repent to repent, repent of their wickedness and their pursuing of evil things and their, their, the evil that they're devising. Even when they're laying in their bed, they're thinking about these things, and the prophet Micah is calling them to repent. And God's saying that he's going to send disaster upon them for their evil. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. 
Do not preach thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has Lord grown impatient? Are those are these his deeds? Not do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind, and uh, utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a sheep in a sheepfold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Okay, that's what this passage says. You kind of get what's going on here. It's a little a little bit difficult because uh, we got some prophetic <clears throat> stuff veiled there symbolically, but uh, nothing in here when we read this in context about some kind of a breaker anointing, but apparently this is something we can hang our faith on, according to uh, Jennifer LeClaire. It's not enough anymore for us to be on our own, praying on our own. We've got to join together. One can put a thousand to flight, right? But two can put 10,000 to flight. What about hundreds of intercessors? What could we do? We could usher in this breaker anointing. Uh, Micah 2 doesn't say anything about ushering in a breaker anointing by uniting intercessors. Let me start this verse again. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. You are the remnant of the United States. You are the uh, remnant uh, of Kentucky. What? <laughs> you are the remnant of the United States? You are the remnant of Kentucky? Kentucky. You are the remnant in your state. Whatever state you're listening to me about with your if god is speaking to your spirit right now about this you are oh no god's not speaking to my spirit the only thing that's happening in, in my spirit is i'm being repulsed by the false doctrine and bible twisting are the remnant i will surely gather the remnant of israel i will put them together like sheep of fold like a flock in the midst of their pasture they shall make a loud noise because of so many people did you hear that when the when the intercessors of kentucky rise up together and start praying <laughs> i had no idea that micah was prophesying about the intercessors of kentucky i mean who knew? I would I would like to see a Bible commentator who's figured this out, you know, and you know, just some really nice Bible commentary, you know, the international, you know, new international Bible commentary or something like that. You open it up there to Micah and it says, and here the prophet Micah is prophesying regarding the remnant of Kentucky when they pull together and experience the breaker anointing. <sighs> Man, wow. Talk about missing the point. The same thing at the same time, it's going to make such a noise in the spirit. The enemy's not going to know what to do with himself. He's never going to, I mean, wow. I don't even have words to describe this. Let me continue. They shall make a loud noise. <laughs> yeah, she's right there. She doesn't have words to describe it because of the words she's using don't describe it. Noise because of so many people. The one who breaks open will come up before them. The one who breaks open. That is the breaker anointing. We are called. No, it's not. Oh, man. <laughs>
Somebody needs to send Jennifer LeClaire like a basic Bible commentary. Calling forth this breaker anointing. And it's not just about worship. It's about worship and intercession together, which is what's so exciting to me because that is part of what we do in the International House of Prayer in Fort Lauderdale. The intercession and the worship together is going to bring in this breaker anointing. It's going to break Satan's plans to bits. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, really. Is that, huh? I love it. Hallelujah. The one who breaks open will come up before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. Their king will pass before them and the Lord at their head. See, Jesus is leading this. Jesus is <laughs> Man, I mean, how on earth do you read the Bible this way? This is ridiculous. This this passage is not talking about some breaker anointing that Jesus is going to lead by calling together the remnant of Kentucky. This is bizarre. Absolutely a complete mangling of God's word and totally missing the point. Leading this. He is making intercession in heaven even now. For I'm sure all of us in, 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 in the United States, God, look, God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? And what does it matter who's against us? Just as the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he's going to bring Kentucky out of the decades of bondage that this state has been in. <laughs> Ooh, boy, you know, if you've been in Kentucky, I mean, all that bondage you've been into, it's about to be broken by the breaker anointing when the intercessors unite because Micah 2, 12 and 13, Jesus is right there at the head of the, uh, the breaker anointing intercessors. And who knew that the, all the way back in the time of Micah, Micah was prophesying about the great breaker anointing of 2014 in in Kentucky. I mean, I, 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 I'm kind of at a loss for words here because how do you how do you refute nonsense? I mean, it's as if somebody took a like a you know an egg beater and stuck it in her brains and just went. And then what, now what comes out is like, this isn't even lucid thought. I don't know what this is. This has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. And no, Jesus is not calling for the intercessors of Kentucky to unite so that he can fulfill Micah 2.12 in Kentucky regarding the breaker anointed. Ah, what has happened to Christianity? And, and Jennifer LeClaire is one of the major editors of Charisma magazine? Really? <laughs> Well, I guess that should tell you the, the caliber of theology that we should be expecting and uh, seeing over there at Charisma Magazine. I mean, clearly not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Anyway, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we will begin our good sermons for the week, a good Easter sermon, so you get an idea of what those sound like in preparation for next week's uh, contest. Stay tuned. Don't miss it. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... <laughs> You're listening. 
listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Hey! Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Okay, we're back. <laughs> Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. It's going to be a weird week. But you won't hear any long, bad sermons this week. That's to help you build up your strength, because you'll need it next week. Yeah, i got to tell you, that every time we do the uh, Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest, you have to have like a stomach of cast iron. It's, it's that bad. But let's do this. Bum, bum, bum. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today we will be listening to three sermons. Three sermons. Um, they're all good Easter sermons, and there are no particular order. None whatsoever. They're short. And you got to just think of it this way. They're humble. The pastors aren't trying to put on a show. They aren't putting on a pageant. They haven't decided to bring people in by doing the... Uh, bait and switch thing you know by talking about star wars or you know things like that they, they didn't lead off with highway to hell nope this is just a good old traditional christ-centered easter sermon that you're going to hear from each of these pastors the first pastor up is uh, pastor cy van manen of uh, riverbend lutheran church and uh, we've played pastor cy's uh, stuff before we'll be listening to his sermon entitled clues and then we will switch gears and we will go to uh, Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California, and listen to their vicar. That's right. They have a vicar there, and his name is Darren Sheik, and he preached the uh, the gospel uh, sermon this, this Easter Sunday entitled, The Resurrection Makes All the Difference. And then to end off today, we will listen to a sermon 
from Pastor Brian Wolfmuller that he preached this past Sunday uh, on Easter. So that's how we're going to do this. And like I said, this isn't, well, this isn't anything to do with, you know, glitziness or anything like that. This is just a, a matter of just preaching the gospel, letting the biblical text do the work and preaching Jesus. And these sermons will help set the benchmark for what you're going to hear next week in our Worst Easter Sermon Contest for the year. So without any further ado, here is Pastor Cy Van Manen and his sermon entitled, Clues. Here we go. Grace and mercy and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for today is from Matthew 28, verse 1 and 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the text. Please be seated. Dear friends in Christ, this year for the kids, Andrea and I continued a tradition that my mom for me had set as a child, and I think that is pretty common at Easter for children, the Easter egg hunt. Most Easter eggs are hidden randomly throughout the house with treats or chocolate at the end. By the parents and the kids run around the house or yard trying to find these treats or treasures. The best finder usually gets the most reward. But we do it differently in our house in that we have the kids follow clues and one clue leads to the next clue and eventually to the cache of treats at the end of the line. The kids know that something good is coming at the end of the line so they search the house with vigor and excitement. We give them such clues as this. This is the place where dad goes to be alone. He reads a book but answers no phone. If dad is the king of castle, then this is the place he calls his throne. After the kids realize it's the toilet, they go running to the toilet to find the next clue, which leads them finally to the grand finale and treasure trove of treats. This year, though, when they got to the end, when the kids got to the end, there was only a few measly chocolates, one for each, and it was not what they expected. Their downcast looks of disappointment was exactly what we were shooting for. As we heard the commitment, or the Committee for Excellent Parenting polishing up our Parents of the Year awards, we did have one last surprise, though, that this measly treat was not the end. We gave them each one more clue which led them to the real cache of treats, the good stuff, the chocolate eggs, the candy, the assortment of garbage that they don't really need but revel in anyway. Then came the rejoicing as the disappointment disappeared and the thing that they were looking for was even better than they imagined. In the text for today, we see Mary of Magdalene and the other Mary go to the tomb of Jesus. And what do they expect to find? Well, Matthew records this. They went to see the tomb. You know, Jesus left all kinds of clues for his followers as to what they should expect to find on this Sunday morning. After Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Mark records this. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And three days later rise again. Later, Mark records, Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. 
And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Though Jesus taught many times in his ministry with parables, on this point, he was very clear, very plain, telling his followers exactly what would happen. The words, be killed and kill him, you might think would be good clues as to what was going to happen to Jesus. After what Mary had seen on Friday and heard this Sunday as they approached the tomb, they expected to see a tomb and a corpse. Luke records that they had brought spices to anoint Jesus' body as it rotted away. And they asked the question, who will roll the stone away for us so that they might finish the process of burial? The women had come looking for and expected to find death. All the clues pointed to it. Mark says that these women were at the crucifixion. They saw the stripes. They saw the blood, the thorns, the burden of the cross, the nails being driven into his hands. They saw Christ lifted up with their own eyes. They saw his death and they heard his words. It is finished. They had seen Jesus die. Sure, Jesus had raised from the dead a 12-year-old girl and the only son born to the widow at Nain and Lazarus, who had been buried for four days in the tomb. But Jesus was crucified. The Romans specialized in death. Jesus was laid in the tomb, cold and gone. All the clues pointed to one conclusion, that Jesus was dead. So the woman come to the tomb knowing they will only find death. Is there solace in death? Can the dead give us any comfort whatsoever? I don't think so. The people of this world are well aware of what awaits them at the end of this life. Death. The clues are everywhere. People age. Youth is chaste. We are a society that works to prolong life regardless of the cost. And why? Because death comes to us all. The great and the small, the rich, the poor, the healthy, and the sick. Alexander the Great, seeing Diogenes looking attentively at a parcel of human bones, asked the philosopher what he was looking for. Diogenes replied, that which I cannot find, the difference between your father's bones and the bones of your father's slaves. There is no difference for those in death. We all have it coming, and for good reason. For Paul tells us in Romans, the wages of sin is death. And no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands God. No one seeks God, Paul says. Because all the clues point to the finality of death. The hearses and the headstones, the cemeteries and sad processions, the graves and the grief. We look for a way to get out. We don't want what comes at the end of the line. So the world seeks solace and fun and forgetting leisure and luxury, booze and bank accounts. We know death is coming, and as Paul says, yet no one seeks God. Left to our own devices, we follow clues that lead us nowhere. As it says in the book of Proverbs, there is a way that seems right unto a man, but that way leadeth unto death. The great thing about Easter for us is the same thing that was so great about Easter for Mary and Mary. All the clues pointed to death. But Jesus is the Lord of life. And they came to the tomb thinking they would find death. And yet they found something so much greater. Jesus is the Lord of life. And though we do not seek him, he 
sought us, bought us with the blood of he spent on the cross and brought us eternal life. While we were still powerless, Christ came for us. He came and was born in the flesh, born to die, to pay for the sins of the world, yours and mine. And today he rises from the grave. You are not here because you are searching for a way to get out of death. You are here because Christ has found you and given you victory over death. Your eternal life is set. Your eternal life is promised and guaranteed for you died when you were baptized into Jesus. And your life is now hidden with God in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Mary and Mary got something totally different at the tomb than they expected. They expected death. They got life. They expected a corpse, but worshipped the risen Christ. They came with fear and questions to the clues about what happened. And they left with promises, joy, and peace. Whether you are here this Sunday or every Sunday, your sins are forgiven. And the promise of Christ remains the promise of eternal life. The clues of your life may point to the fact that your end should not be good, that it should be bad. But in Christ, it is made good. And not just good for a while, but good for all of eternity. For Christ has overcome death. The end of the line for you is Christ's heavenly mansions and life with God. Dear friends in Christ, Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Alleluia. And so shall you. Thanks be to God. Amen. And now let us pray. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in and through Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen. Amen. You see, it can be done. You can actually preach Jesus in his saving office and rising from the grave on Easter Sunday. I mean, who knew? <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, next sermon, and this comes to us via Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California, and their vicar, Vicar Darren Sheik, and his sermon from this past Sunday entitled The Resurrection Makes All the Difference. Here we go. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. Friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is risen from the dead. Alleluia. And what a difference three days can make. I mean, we're talking less than 72 hours. And it can either seem as if those days go by way too quickly, like over a much-needed three-day weekend. Or on the other hand, it can seem like they would never end. I mean, Jonah, we are told, spent three days and three nights in a belly of a fish. And it would not be surprising if you could ask him that he would tell you they dragged on way too long. And what about the disciples who fled from Jesus on the night that he's arrested and later saw him crucified? The days following Jesus' death must have seemed like an eternity. Their world was shattered. I mean, a week earlier, they were walking into Jerusalem alongside Jesus, who was being welcomed as a triumphant king. And now their hopes 
of a new kingdom with Jesus as their king were gone. They spend the days now in fear for their lives, trying to make sense out of the last three years that now seem to have vanished. But what a difference three days can make. Three days prior, Matthew tells us that two Marys stood by in darkness and watched the crucified Jesus die upon a cross. And they felt the earth shake beneath their feet as he took his last breath. On that Black Friday, the women saw Jesus' dead body wrapped in burial clothes and placed in a tomb. They witnessed a large stone rolled over its entrance. Then Pilate ordered soldiers to seal and secure the tomb where Jesus lay to prevent his body from being stolen. And now, three days later, on the first day of the week, at the light of dawn, the same two women come to visit the tomb only to feel the earth shake under their feet again and to find the great stone rolled away and the entrance of the tomb now open. At the invitation of the angel, the women found no body, no corpse, only the burial clothes where Jesus once laid. He is not here. He is risen. Can you imagine their astonishment? The whirlwind of of mixed emotions they must have felt? Fear turning into joy? Despair and sorrow now turned into hope? Broken heartedness now into elation as they are promised that they and the disciples will see Jesus again. Jesus is risen. He's risen from the dead. What a difference three days can make. Going from darkness to light, from despair to hope, from death to life, from crucifixion to resurrection. Yes, those three days made all the difference for the entirety of the human race, from Adam on down, for the two Marys, for the disciples, and for you. Jesus' resurrection makes all of the difference. The events of Jesus' resurrection were astounding. It was surprising, even though in hindsight it shouldn't have been. The appearance of the angel of the Lord like lightning and dressed in pure white whose appearance made the trained and tough Roman soldiers collapse like dead men. Now that was amazing. And the women coming to see Jesus but instead finding an open and empty tomb and being told that Jesus isn't there but has risen, that is incredible. But still, really, should not have come as a surprise. 
The angel told the women that Jesus had risen just as he said. Even the night before his crucifixion, right after he instituted his supper, he tells the disciples that he will be put to death. But then he will be raised to life. Jesus even predicts his disciples falling away, but yet still tells them that he will meet them again in Galilee. This was the plan all along. Even at the announcement of his birth, the angel told Joseph that this baby Jesus would be born to save his people from their sins. This was God's purposed plan from the very beginning. This was the mission of our Lord, that Jesus would be put to death by hanging on a tree, but then raised up to life on the third day. I mean, to these events, the Old Testament prophets wrote about them. And even Peter, who once denied the Lord Jesus, went on to preach boldly until his death what he personally witnessed, realizing himself that this was Jesus' purpose from the very beginning of his ministry, his ministry that was finished on his cross and fulfilled in his resurrection for you. Yet, where would you be without the resurrection of Jesus? With his death only, he would still be in the grave and you would be dead in your sins. Where would this leave Jesus if his body was still in the tomb? As another religious prophet whose grave could be visited and whose life could be venerated, venerated as a, a good teacher, a great, amazing physician, an inspiration to the down and out? Or perhaps he would be just another one of the many religious fanatics whose life ended in tragic death. Where would that leave you if Christ was not raised? Where would you now turn for hope in this world that offers so many promises that turn out to be dead ends? Who would you now put your trust in to help you navigate through your life's difficulties? What lengths would you go to to find peace in the face of your inevitable death? My friends, the resurrection makes all the difference. Jesus reveals himself not to be just any man, but eternal God clothed in human flesh. Jesus' pure and righteous life is now given to you in exchange for your sin. Jesus' death on his cross and his resurrection has won forgiveness for all of your sins. 
Jesus' resurrection conquered once and for all death itself and has secured your eternal life. His resurrection is now your hope of resurrection. And since Jesus has been raised from the dead, so will you who trust in Christ, true God, who became a genuine man to die an actual physical death for your real and actual sins and has conquered your inevitable death in order to give you forgiveness and life. The resurrection makes all of the difference. And yet, what would be the purpose of going to church, of being here this morning in this place if Jesus has not been raised from the dead? Without a risen Jesus, the church is just one more social group and a service organization for the community. It would be another place where people could come and hear an encouraging word of how to be a better person, how to be more successful as an individual or a better parent, better spouse, a better child. What we do in worship here, the rites, the words, the songs, the prayers would be done to manipulate God to gain his favor so that he would be pleased with our offerings to him. Church would be a place to learn rules, albeit good rules, to follow in order to to please God and to help us get along with each other. This is what church boils down to without a risen Jesus. But the resurrection makes all of the difference. Jesus' word is faithful and true, just as he promised that he would die and rise again. Just as Jesus promised to meet his disciples in Galilee, so now he promises to meet you here, where we are gathered around his word and promised gifts. He comes to you to meet you who are in need of comfort. You who suffer over the death of loved ones. You who now live in the pain of broken relationships. Jesus' resurrection makes all of the difference. He comes to meet you who are in need of hope because your plans and your hopes for this life are running on empty. Jesus' resurrection makes all of the difference. He comes to give you peace, whose lives are now being crushed, filled with expectations and stresses of life and never-ending demands. Jesus' resurrection makes all of the difference. He comes to give you life, who are faced with your own mortality and unavoidable death. And he comes with unending forgiveness for you who are worn and scarred by the sin in your lives, being overtaken by the temptations that face you every day. Jesus' resurrection makes all of the difference. Jesus is not surprised by all that plagues you 
And Jesus shows no partiality and is here to meet you and to care for you in all of your brokenness, just as you are. He does all of this because he is alive and his word is living and active and is being delivered to you this very morning. The living Christ and his living word make all of the difference. This morning, the resurrection makes all of the difference for Scarlet and Simone who have been washed in holy baptism, having their sins washed away and being wrapped in Christ's righteousness. And you too have been bap- who have been baptized can now cling with unshakable certainty onto the promise that God has made you in your baptism. That your life is now hidden in Christ. And when the risen Christ appears at his return, you too will appear with him in glory. The resurrection makes all of the difference as our risen Lord gives life and forgiveness through ordinary words, ordinary bread, ordinary wine, making them a holy absolution. And a holy meal. All of this he does to care for you through his church. Where he promises to meet you. And to give you what he knows that you need. The strengthening of your faith in his unfailing promise of life and salvation. Jesus' resurrection makes all of the difference. Resurrection is life. And Jesus' resurrection gives you the certainty of eternal life as he's promised. You who believe in him, though you die, you shall live. The resurrection of Christ not only gives you the hope of life and death, but also the hope of new life now as we live here, this side of heaven. You have new life now with the promise of of an eternal new life to come. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you and in me to keep us in our faith and to keep our faith alive and ever clinging onto Christ's unfailing promises. And by this faith, we now live as a new creation, new creatures that have been set free from sin to live lives To God. This is God's resurrecting power at work in you, never failing, always working, and forever keeping you in His grace unto unto eternal life. Christ Jesus is risen. He's risen indeed. Alleluia. And His resurrection makes all of the difference. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Yep, no glitz, no sizzle, just Christ. And Him crucified and risen again for our salvation, for our justification. And it makes all the difference, right? All right. The last sermon of the good sermons that we will hear today is from Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and his sermon entitled, Risen Indeed. Here we go. Christ is risen. 
He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Dear saints, Christ is risen for you. Just as He suffered for you, died for you, everything that Jesus was and everything that Jesus is, everything that He did and that He still does is for you. And that is why we have such great and profound joy on this day, even in the midst of suffering, in in this life of death, in the world falling apart, we gather together singing hallelujahs because Christ is risen and in His death and in His resurrection, He brings us life and salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. All of our hopes and all of our dreams are bound up to Jesus, and so all of our hopes are sure. But imagine for a moment, imagine knowing Jesus, and imagine trusting in Him, but not knowing about His resurrection. How would that be? Now that's what our gospel text is about. On the first Easter morning, when Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, they went to the tomb, they didn't go to see an empty tomb. They were going to the tomb because they thought that that is where the body of Jesus was. Now, this is a a simple point, but I don't want us to miss it this morning. They brought spices with them because they had not had time on Friday after his crucifixion to finish the work of burial, which was for the Jews wrapping the body in, in, in a linen cloth and pouring over it perfume, ointment, and spices. And they were going to the tomb on that first Easter to finish the sad work of burying Jesus, the one that they love the one in whom they trusted. All of their hope was bound up to Jesus, but now they think He is dead. And their hopes are crushed. And He's lying there in the tomb. Now, all of us know something of this, the sadness of the death of someone that we love and all the things that go along with it, the sadness, the question, the fears, the temptations. Perhaps in the the darkness of mourning, the thing that comes to tempt us the most is regret. We all know this. We all have regrets. All of us, we could probably just make a list right now of all the things that we've done that we wish we had never done, all of the things that we said that we wish we had never said, all of the things that we want to say and we want to do, but we can't bring ourselves to do them because of our fear or our cowardice. You know what I'm talking about? Oftentimes we have more sophisticated excuses to excuse ourselves for not doing these things. But this is really what it is, fear and cowardice, and this is what it is, regret. Now sometimes, and this is part of the tricky part with regret, sometimes we regret things that we did because they truly are sins and we feel guilty. Sometimes we have regrets because people have sinned against us. Sometimes we have thoughts and we have emotions, things that we, that we even, that we never have even acted upon, anger or jealousy that is bounced so fiercely around our own minds and around our own hearts and conscience that it troubles us. But normally we put off this nagging voice of regret and we, and we use time as an excuse, right? I'll get to it later. I'll make things right. 
I'll call them. I'll talk to them. I'll make up for it. But then death and time is up and regret attacks. Oh, I wish I would have said this or done that. I wish it would have told them that I loved them, that I forgave them. I wish we could have gone to this place or seen that thing. I had wish I never had done that to them or said those things. And the more that we love a poor person, the more profound our regret. I suppose we shouldn't be surprised by this, that it has to be this way. After all, you and I are sinners, which means, among other things, that we sin. <laughs> We don't love each other like we should. We hurt each other. We fail each other. And the closer the Lord has bound us up to one another, the more we know each other, the more we know each other's sins. Husband and wife especially. Parents and children. Brothers and sisters. And dear friends. Now, I've sat with many of you fighting through this temptation of regret. And any number of you have asked me this question. After a loved one has died, you've said, is there something more that I could have done? And the answer is, yes. You could have done more. You know the comfort that the world tries to give. It always says something like this. There's nothing more you could have done. But this is an absolutely empty comfort. I mean, it might be true that there was no better medical treatment or or that you might have made the best decision in a terrible situation, but in general, all of us could always love more. You could have been more caring to your wife. You could have taken better care of your husband. You could have treated your parents better. You could have been more true to your friend. You, after all, are a sinner, and that means that you have sinned. And in your sin, you've hurt people, and you've hurt the people you love the most. So you regret. And this is your conscience's way of letting you know that your sin against others has to be reckoned with. Now, the Scriptures don't tell us directly about the regrets of the women who go to the tomb of Jesus, only that they were sad and confused. But we do learn of one man's regret, and that's St. Peter. Peter was the Lord's closest friend, and he was in his life his fiercest defender. Peter, on Thursday night, took up his sword when they were in the garden to defend Jesus and sliced off one of the ears of the temple guard. Peter is the one who took the risk of following Jesus into the house of the high priest to see how his trial would go. But the devil had asked for Peter. And as Jesus stood trial before the Sanhedrin, so Peter would have a different sort of trial that night. Three times, three strangers come to ask Peter, do you know him? Are you one of his disciples? In the courtyard as they were gathering them, uh, warming themselves around the coal fire from the cold And each time Peter denied it. No, Peter says. Woman, I don't know him. And then Peter takes an oath. Man, I don't know what you are saying. And at this third denial, we have one of the most profound moments in the the history of the sacred text. That moment in the Lord's Passion, where when Peter speaks his third denial... 
Jesus looks from the court where he's being tried, and his eyes meet Peter's eyes, and the rooster crows. And Peter remembers what Jesus had said, that before the rooster crows this night, you will deny me three times. And Peter runs out of the courtyard, weeping, the text says, bitterly. Imagine that. The last words that your Lord and your friend hear you say as he's being handed over to whip and cross is a word of denial. At his deepest hour of need, you abandoned him. Fear and pride and stupidity all come together in this flourish of a sin right at the end. And then Jesus is dead. I suspect that the other disciples were wondering what they could have done to help Jesus, to save him at the end. They wondered where things went wrong, how they couldn't have seen that Judas was a betrayer. It's so clear now. How they could have let Jesus talk them into going down to Jerusalem. They, they would have had regrets. But Peter, I imagine that Peter couldn't even look them in the eye. He was a traitor, no better than Judas. All his boldness and seemingly strong faith were so shown on this night to be a sham. And now he questions even if he himself loved Jesus at all. This is regret. Peter is our brother. And here we are this morning with all of our sin, all of our hurt, all of our regret, like piled in a heap on top of us. And you know this. You know your sin against your neighbors, your sin against your loved ones, those who have died, those who are still alive. You know the hurt that you've caused. And you know your sin against God. Those things about your own faith that you regret. Those things that you're going to get around to, reading the Bible more, getting to church more often, remembering to pray with your family, not using the Lord's name in vain. And you, like Peter, have denied Jesus time and again by what you've done in your sin, by what you've failed to say and do. And I suppose that for many of us, in those profound moments of self-realization that we have stood there with Peter weeping. Your faith in tatters as you look at your own life and you figure that you are not worthy to be his disciple. You are certainly not ready and able, not worthy of being his friend and I suppose in those moments with Peter, you and I are probably right. But listen. The women come to the tomb to find the body of Jesus and instead find an angel with a message. Do not be alarmed, the angel says. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? Go, tell his disciples and Peter <laughs> that he's going before you to Galilee. 
Did you hear that? And Peter, the angel said, tell Peter the stone is rolled away. Tell Peter the tomb is empty. Tell Peter that Jesus is raised. Tell Peter that he goes before them to Galilee. Tell Peter that the crucified one is now the risen one. Dear saints, this is for you. In all of your regret, in all of your sin, in all of your doubt, in all of your darkness, the angel wants the message of the resurrection to be for you. Because all of your sin, every single bit of it is died for by Jesus. Your regret, all of it is covered by his blood. The sins that you've committed against your neighbor, the sins that your neighbor has committed against you, the sins that you've committed against God, all of it. There's nothing left. Your death is defeated. Your sin is forgiven. Your shame is covered. And so your regret is gone. Jesus is risen. He's left the grave behind. He's out. He is, if you will, he's loose. And he's after you. (laughs) And nothing will stand in his way. Not your sin. Not your guilt. Not your piles of regret. Not your death. If Jesus was willing to go through the punishment of God's wrath and the grave to get to you, He won't let this stand in the way. He won't let your regret stop Him. He won't let your guilt slow you down. And dear saints, this is our resurrection joy. Jesus is alive. He is alive for you. He sends the good news to you so that you would rejoice. And you know this all in these words. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, Guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. So hopefully you're starting to hear, kind of get in your mind, okay, a good Easter sermon sounds like what I've just been listening to. Right. Based on the text, preaches Jesus in his saving office, raised from the grave. He's the focus. He's not an afterthought. What he did is not a huzzah, yay for Jesus. Now let's move along and talk about something more important. He is the important thing that is being discussed and proclaimed, and what he's done for us is being preached to us sinners who need to hear it. Good news is being preached to the poor, if you would. So, all right, what do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at... Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>